Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much to Stuart and the team for leading us. Thank you for reading as well, Stuart. Let's turn to our Lord in prayer again. As we enter into your presence this morning, dear Lord, we pray that you'd meet with us. With the psalmist, we ask, incline our hearts to your testimony and not to selfish gain. Turn our eyes away from looking at worthless things and give us life according to your ways. The ways and your testimonies that you have declared in your word. And so we pray, dear Lord, help us in our weakness. Help us to behold wondrous things of you and help us to respond appropriately this morning with greater faith, greater hope, greater love. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Stuart is right, that is a sad passage. I'm going to share a sadder story. The death of Princess Alice is heartbreaking but moving. Uh, she lived from 1843 to 1878. Uh, she was the second daughter of Queen Victoria. And in November 1878, her entire family fell ill with diphtheria, an airborne disease that spread through, that spread, spread through direct contact. And five of her six children contracted the disease. <clears throat> now, I'm sure you can all agree that must be a nightmare for a mother. Most of your children are sick, and you can't comfort them, you can't care for them. Well, halfway through November, the worst thing happened. Her youngest, Mary, succumbed to the disease. She described the pain as beyond words. When her eldest son found out, he was inconsolable. He wept uncontrollably at the loss of her, his baby sister. At that moment, without giving it any thought, without caring for herself, she embraced her son, kissed him, and comforted him regardless of the disease that had overtaken his own body. And sadly, she contracted the disease, and a few days later, she passed away. I think we know something of that. Why am I telling you such a terribly sad story? Well, to point you to an example of someone who loved deeply. Someone whose love wasn't shallow or superficial or selfish. Someone who loved deeply. A story like that challenges us. Do we love in such a way? Do we love deeply? Not a sentimental love that thrives when things go well, but a deeper love that forgets self and abides in trial and pain and heartache? Do we love with a deep, sincere, heartfelt love? Too often, let's be honest, our love is very superficial. It, it's present when things go well, but it's all too, all too often absent in the throngs of grief and despair. And why is that? The reason is simple, I think, and we think, I think we all know this. We, our love, is often self-seeking, isn't it? We're happy to love others until it starts costing us something, until it starts becoming uncomfortable, until it starts requiring us to give of ourselves. 
See, the Bible tells us to, to love our neighbor as ourselves, and we rather want to focus on the lost part and just love ourselves. So in reality, we have not often seen love that is deep, love that is sacrificial. That, that's why an example of Princess Alice stands out. It's unique. And so the question I've asked you this morning is a difficult one. Do we love deeply? And the answer probably is not often. The question becomes then, how then do we love deeply? Well, that's where I want us to draw our attention to our passage because it's a helpful guide for us. Here in our passage, we see David is a man who loves deeply. He he loves sincerely. He, He doesn't love with a shallow, superficial, selfish love, but with a deep, heartbroken love. To understand this, let's, let's walk our way through our passage. And, and really our passage divides into two, uh, what I've called the report and the response. Uh, the report we see in verse 1 to uh, 10. It works. If you remember, at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 30, uh, the Am- Amalekites raided Ziklag. Uh, the city that David had occupied, and they burnt it with fire and carried it away. Everything that belonged to David, his wives, his children, his livestock, and not just his, but the wives and children and livestock of his men. And in that chapter, we saw that after David had inquired of the Lord, he pursued these Amalekites and conquered them and regained what belonged to him. Well, now in our chapter, he's, he's back in Ziklag for two days, the smell of burnt houses and fields still in the air. And lo and behold, another Amalekite. But this time, this Amalekite comes in humility, it seems. He comes with torn clothes and dirt on his head, signs of mourning and grief. And he falls before David, paying homage to him as if he is king. And after three pointed questions by David, this Amalekite gives three disturbing revelations. One, he has escaped the the camp of Israel, that Israel has fallen by the hand of the Philistines, and, and the king and his sons are dead. And perhaps most shocking of all, this Amalekite, at the supposed request of Saul, has put the king to death. Now this is... This is shocking news. This is unbelievable. This is life-changing. The king of Israel and his heirs are dead. The armies of Israel are defeated. The land of Israel is being invaded by the Philistines. There is no kingdom in Israel. This is, without a doubt, troubling news. Before we consider how David responds, you must understand that we're hearing the support from the Amalekites, somewhat differently to David. See, unlike David, we have the privilege of having read uh, 1 Samuel 31. See, the narrator has already told us and equipped us as readers with the tools to judge this Amalekite story. And we can almost immediately pick up something fishy here. 1 Samuel 31 has told us explicitly that, Sa- that, that, that Samuel fell on his own sword that he died and wasn't wounded and somehow carried along anguishing walking about. No, 1 Samuel 31.6 explicitly says, Thus Saul died 
and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. The idea that Saul was limping along by himself, chased by the Philistines up a mountain, by chance he saw this Amalekite, is all absolutely false. It's fabrication. The question is, though, if this Amalekite's report is false, then how do we explain that he has the royal regalia? How does he have the crown and the armlet of Saul? Well, the most plausible example, explanation is that this Amalekite was probably plundering the dead bodies of Israel and by chance came upon Saul and instead of taking Saul's body out of there away from the vultures, the Philistines, and saving it from them, he plunders and strips his body of the crown, the armlet, and leaves the bodies, his body for the vultures as it were. See, when, he takes, when we take all of this into account, it appears that this Amalekite isn't all too humble after all. No, this Amalekite lied, assuming that his deception would earn him rewards. It would earn him a lack of fat check. See, here's a man who knew that David was set to be king over Israel. And he thought if he took the regalia to David and if he told him that he killed Saul, opening a way for Saul to take the crown, to take the throne, then he thought, oh, David would, would surely rejoice and, and reward him. See, this Amalekite isn't sincere. His torn clothes, his dirty face in verse 2 is all a show. It's fake. It's superficial. It's a deceptive ploy. This man isn't moved by grief over the death of Israel. No, this man is moved by self-interest and ambition. Not a love for God's people, but a love for self. See, this Amalekite is an example, a wonderful example of fallen human nature that is often consumed by self. Now, I think it's important at this point to realize that David and this Amalekite are purposely put together in this narrative. The question becomes, how will David respond? Will he, like the Amalekite, be motivated by self-interest and ambition? Surely that wouldn't be too wrong for David. After all, didn't Saul treat him as an enemy? Didn't Saul repeatedly try to take his life? Didn't Saul cause David and his men to flee from Israel, flee from their country, flee from the worship of God? Moreover, wasn't David already anointed king by Samuel? Wasn't he the chosen one by God to rule Israel? If so, then surely David wouldn't be wrong to jump at the opportunity to finally become king. See, although David repeatedly refused to take Saul's life in 1 Samuel, here someone comes along and he's done the job for him. Surely David then can just take the step and, and announce himself as king. Now, if we had to go by human expectations and human nature, it wouldn't surprise us if David did that. If he acted like the Amalekite, with self-interest in mind, Experiences teaches us that, that we by nature are self-seeking. We are self-serving. We, we want to advance self. That wouldn't surprise us, but what does surprise us 
is the fact that that's not how David responds. Let's look secondly then at the response of David this morning, verse 17 to 27. At the report of Saul's death, David doesn't respond with self-seeking ambition. No, David, the man after God's own heart, responds with heartbreak. He's got three responses to, to this news. The first response is mourning. You, you see that in verse 11 to 12. David breaks out weeping. He, he tears his clothes. Again, a son of grief and mourning. His weeping must have been so intense because we're told that his men join him in, in weeping and, and grieving. Imagine the scene. Here is mighty David with his mighty men and they're sobbing, weeping, crying. And notice who they're crying over. Verse 12, they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. See, here David and his men put on display for us their deep love for God's people. They may have been chased out of Israel by Saul. They may have lived, lived among the Philistines for over a year, yet their hearts were in Israel, and now their hearts break for Israel. And what is remarkable here is that the fact that they display such genuine grief for Saul and Israel. Despite the reality that Saul and many in Israel saw them as traitors, as enemies. See, David and his men display for us a love for their enemies. Although David didn't see Saul as an enemy, Saul did. Yet David still loved him and grieved over him. I think David here exemplifies what Christ exhorts us in John, in Luke 6, 27. He says, but I say to you here, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Even verse 33, he says, he asks, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. See, the love that David displays you, the, the love that Jesus demands, is a deep and wide love that embraces even those who cheat us as enemies. So, so that's David's first response to this news. He, he mourns, and, and this mourning is a clear display of love for God's people. Second response is he responds with execution. After mourning the defeat of Israel, David returns to this Amalekite and asks another question. Where do you come from? Now, David knows this is already an Amalekite, but he's not asking a question about ethnicity. No, he wants to know what this man's upbringing is, what his awareness is of Israelite laws and customs and justice. And the Amalekite condemns himself. He admits he's a sojourner which is a legal status in the nation. You, you were protected by the community laws. You enjoyed the privileges of the nations, but also you were bound by legal obligations and penalties. And as a sojourner, this Amalekite should have known that the king is off limits. He is sacrosanct. He is the Lord's anointed. He is untouchable. As one commentator put it, to kill the anointed of the Lord is to turn against the Lord himself. And so based on the fact that he's a sojourner 
and based on the fact that he has, uh, he has confessed to killing Saul, this Amalekite is justly put to death. Even though he didn't actually kill Saul, his fabricated testimony still condemns him. That's why David is clear in verse 16, your blood be on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I've killed the Lord's anointed. There are a number of lessons to learn from this particular one, but one I think we need to take note of is this deception does not pay. Although this man's deception wasn't uncovered, he still pays the consequences for his sin. And realize, in this world, oftentimes our deception and our sin often goes uncovered. Many people lie, they cheat, they steal without any remorse and without ever being caught or being brought to justice. We realize, beloved, what this passage shows us and what the rest of the Bible teaches us is that each one of us will have to give an account for every sin. Each one of us has to pay the penalty for our sin and face the consequences for our deception and our sin. Numbers 32-23 says this, Behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Young people, boys, girls, realize this, you cannot keep your sins quiet. You cannot keep it secret. No, it will be found out. See, in this life or the next, you will have to give an account. Each one of us will have to face the consequences of our sin. And that consequence ultimately is death. Not just death for sin, which is the wages of sin, but suffering and, and trial and, and, and being robbed of joy. That's what the Bible says sin does. See, deception doesn't pay, sin doesn't pay. We will have to all face the consequences for it. That's the second response that Paul, or that Paul, David has to the report. The third one is a bit longer, and that is the lament in verses uh, 17 to 27. A lament is quite different to the spontaneous outburst of emotion that we saw in verse 11 to 12. Now, a lament is, is planned, it's, it's ordered, it's processed, it's considered. Listen to Dale Rolf Davis, who explains it much better than I can. He said this, A lament is a formal expression of grief, grief or distress, one that can be written, read, learned, practiced, repeated. A lament differs from the informal, spontaneous, immediate outbursts of grief, like those of verse 11 to 12. A lament is no less sorrowful or sincere, it's a vehicle for the mind as well as for the emotions. A lament is an expression of thoughtful grief. And that's what we see in David here. He's thoughtfully and poetically putting his grief on paper. And notice David writes this, this lament for the nation, for Judah. This lament which some think is titled The Bow is to be remembered and repeated by God's people. They must not forget this horrible, terrible day. Why is that? Well, I'd like to suggest David here is starting to act like the king long before he is crowned as king. 
How is that? Well, David here wants to guide the nation spiritually. He wants him to remember the harsh realities of life. Even the mighty of God can fall. That's why this lament is to be taught to God's people. To recognize the, the brevity of life. And to, and to also recognize the harsh realities of the threat that is available around us. David wants to remind the people that, that the boastful, uncircumcised Philistines are still a threat. And so this lament is meant to, to motivate even God's people. That's why this lament is taught to Judah and put in the book of Jeshur, which was an ancient book containing poetry and hymns recorded in, light, uh, in political events of the, of the nation. But that's verse 17 to 19. Let's look at uh, verse 19 to 27 uh, and the structure is quite simple, and I just want to walk through it very quickly. The lament starts in verse 19 with this opening statement, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. That, would, that phrase, how the mighty have fallen, is repeated three times. It's meant to communicate the intensity of, of David's despair and grief. See, the glory of Israel, the, the mighty warriors of Israel, Saul and Jonathan, have been killed, and it shakes David to the core so much that he has to repeat it to himself. And after verse 19 and verse 20, we find his first response to this loss. And what response is that? He wants silence. He, he doesn't want this news to be told to the Philistines, in the land of the Philistines, lest they rejoice at this loss. Now David knows that they will rejoice, but it bothers him. Just like it bothered him that Dave, that Goliath would defy the armies of the living God, it bothers him now that the enemies of God would boast in the loss of God's people. See, David is a man who has a high regard for the honor of God and God's people. But see, after verse 20, we find a second response to the loss in verse 20, 21. David moves now to curse the very mountain upon which David or Saul and David, Jonathan died. Because the shield of the mighty was defiled with blood, because their lives were taken from them, David wants this mountain to be defiled. He wants this mountain to have all life removed from it. See, David here is grieving, and in his anger, he, he curses that place. But just as his heart rages against the, the Philistines and Mount Galbao, David's heart moves to rejoice in the memory of Saul and Jonathan. You, you see the heart of this lament in verse 22 to 23. Here David remembers with fondness the, the, the might and the beauty and the loveliness of Saul and Jonathan. Look at what he says. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back. The sword of Saul turned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. See, in David's eyes, Saul and Jonathan were mighty. Their weapons were effective. Their bond unbreakable. Their strength unmatched. Yet these beautiful, mighty men have fallen. And so David's grief returns in verse 
24 and 25a. Here his grief now is focused on, on Saul. And in contrast to the daughters of Philistia who are rejoicing, David tells the daughters of Israel, weep, weep. Why? Because Saul has been killed. See, David has put aside all the faults of Saul and he only remembers the good. Under Saul, the women of Israel were protected and cared for. Yet all of that is in jeopardy now with the death of the king. In verse 25b to 26, there's a fourth and final response to this grief. And this time, David personally focuses on his beloved brother and friend, Jonathan. And you sense the, the level of his despair because he even dresses Jonathan directly. He says, I am in distress for you. My brother Jonathan, very pleasant you have been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of woman. What we see here is David's great love for his brother, a deep and abiding love that wasn't sacrificial or that wasn't superficial, but that was uh, sacrificial. And it's, it's this love, this, this loss of this love, this brotherly love between friends that, that deepens David's despair and deepens his grief. As one commentator put it, the greater the love, the greater the grief. That's what David is experiencing. That's why he closes off in verse 27, how the mighty have fallen. See, this is a lament of heartbreak. In a sense, I think you could sum up uh, this entire lament with verse 19. Your glory, O Israel, is slain. That word glory can be translated as beauty. And that's what Saul and Jonathan were in David's eyes. They were beautiful. They were mighty. They were glorious. Saul, the Lord's anointed, the king, the shepherd of God's people. And Jonathan, the epitome of faithfulness. Despite his father's failures, he was devoted to his father, even till death. What beauty. See, far from someone being motivated by self-interest, David is a man who loves deeply. And therefore, he grieves deeply. This leads me to the question to ask, what do we learn from David's response? As David responds with mourning and execution and lament, what are we meant to learn? Well, let me start by saying what doesn't teach us. It doesn't teach us about grief. Contrary to what many pastors and theologians teach, this passage isn't primarily about grief. If you're coming to this passage to look for a Christian understanding of grief and how you as a Christian should process your grief, you're coming to the wrong place. To, to be sure, we can learn a few lessons. We can see the benefit of writing a lament, which is a helpful means of processing your grief. Often in grief, as with Princess Alice, the pain is beyond words. Well, sometimes it's helpful to, to force ourselves to, to put words on paper to help us process our grief. That's why in, in, in memorials and funerals, we encourage people to write eulogies, eulogies that remember their loved ones, that praise God for them, 
that allows them to express their deep love and deep sense of loss. So we certainly learn from this passage then the value of writing a lament. For those grieving among us, and there are a number, perhaps this is something you need to be doing. Write a lament or even a series of laments. I know of a pastor who lost a child and and was encouraged to write a blog, and he wrote a blog with a series of laments, and it was used by God to encourage him and help him and others. And so perhaps, if you're grieving this morning, you're longing for a loved one, put your tears and your grief on paper. Write it to God who hears and understands your heartbreak. Address your loved one personally. Tell them how much you miss them, how much you love them, how much they mean. Rejoice in all the good memories, their beauty, their glory, their might. And finally, pray that God, by His grace, may through your lament help to strengthen you and sustain you as you you work through your grief. God can use that. God can use even lament like that for us. But with all that said, I firmly believe this passage is not primarily about grief. Then what's it about? It's about the deep love that David has for God's people. When David mourns in verse 11 to 12, he does so because God's people have lost their lives. When he executes the Amalekite in verse 13 to 16, he does so because God's law was violated, the law that protected the people's king. And when he laments in verse 19 to 27, he does so because the glory and the beauty of God's people have fallen. See, David mourns for the fallen men of Israel because they are his people. They are his brothers, his friends. He tells the daughters of Israel to weep because they are his people, his mothers, his sisters, his daughters. He weeps over Saul and Jonathan because it's his family. That's his king, his father, his brother. So the point to get is David loved deeply, and he loved his people deeply till the end. And beloved, when you see that, when you see the depth of David's love, you're able to see the one to whom David actually points. You're able to see someone greater than David. You actually see Jesus. Because Jesus loved deeply. And he loved his people deeply till the end. In John 13, verse 1, we were told, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart, out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them till the end. And how did he love them till the end? He loved them till the end by giving himself for them on the cross. In John 15, 13 to 14, Jesus says this, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And remember in Matthew 1250, Jesus says, if you do the Father's will, which is what he's commanding his disciples to do, if you do that, you're not just my friends, you're my brothers, my sisters, my mother. 
See, like David, Jesus loved his people deeply. Unlike David, Jesus loved them till the end by dying for them. David's love is displayed at the, the death of his loved ones. Or Christ's love is put on display as he dies for his loved ones. If you look to the cross, you look to what Jesus did there, you can say legitimately, your glory, O Israel, is slain. Your glory is saying the glorious son of God, the promised son of David, the Messiah, the beauty of Israel is slain. Why? To pay the penalty for my sin and your sin. To pay the death that we deserve. To conquer us, to, to conquer our enemy, the deceiver. To redeem us from this fallen world. To purchase us for God, to give us eternal life, to make us sons and daughters of God, to inherit the, the privileges of being family of God, to give that right to those who believe. Your glory is slain, O Israel. It's at the cross, the glory of Israel is slain. Out of a love for Israel, a love for God's people, for the love for the church. Dear beloved, behold the, the love of Christ who loved his own till the end. And realize when you behold the deep love of Christ, then two things happen. Firstly, you are now equipped with a Christian understanding of grieving. From the cross, we are inevitably led to the empty tomb. At the cross, he, he conquers our sin, and at the empty tomb, he conquers our death. See, those in Christ never truly die. In fact, they are more alive in Christ than ever before. Remember what Paul said in Philippians, to die is gain. To depart and be with Christ is far better. See, those in Christ have this assurance that there is hope in death. Because death has been defeated by Christ, and therefore those in Christ grieve with hope. They can lament with hope. Yes, your glory is slain, O Israel, but he has been raised to greater glory, glory that belongs to those who love Christ and who are in Christ. But there's another thing that happens when you grasp the deep love of Christ. Secondly, you're empowered to love deeply. If Jesus loved his people so deeply that he dies for them, then how can you and I not love his people deeply? Truly understanding that Christ has loved his people should cut down any and all self-interest and self-ambition. It should cut out any superficiality. Remember, the Christian brother and sister you relate to, the one you're sitting next to, is someone loved so deeply by Christ that he died for them. And therefore, if we love him who died for us, we ought to love those for whom he also died. Israel's glory is slain, but he was slain for God's people, and therefore let us glory in God's people. 
Let us see one another as beautiful and glorious, purchased with the precious blood of Christ. If you can't love deeply those for whom Christ died, be warned. Be reminded of 1 John 4, 7, 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Dear friends, dear beloved of God, let us love deeply. If Christ laid down his life for us, let us lay down our lives for one another. Let us love sincerely. Let us love in word and deed. Let us love deeply till the end. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for a difficult passage like this, a heartbreaking passage. We want to thank you for the example of David's deep love for his people, his love for you, his commitment to Saul even in death, his heartbreak for Jonathan. Lord, we know that David, even in his beginning chapters, really does act like a man after your own heart. He's an example to us. Dear Lord, we pray that we would like David love deeply. And we pray that we would love deeply not only when death comes, but in life. That we'd love one another firmly, sincerely, devotedly, because we know that ultimately it's Christ that unites us. It's the glory of Israel that's been slain to redeem us, to unite us together, to build up the church. And so we pray, dear Lord, help us to, to be a people of deep, intense love. Not a such shallow, superficial, self-interested love, but one that is an example of Christ's love even. We help. We pray that you help us in this. In Christ's name, Amen.